Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 294. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. everyone i hope everyone is fine and dandy what a glorious day what a glorious week we've had over here in on the northeast coast of england beautiful weather not too hot and not too cold so almost time for flip-flops god help us <laughs> listen i hope everywhere where you're where you're staying on this planet that it's not too not too sweltering hot and not too cold either i hope you have a a pleasant time ahead. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have a fact article, Morgan, with his everything. Then we have the main fiction, which is Caroline M. Yakim, The Philosophy of Ships. A great show. I do hope you'll agree. Before we get into the main things, I just want to plug again, SofaCon. Just want to give you a heads up, really. It is the fastest selling event I've ever put up. Soon as I kind of announced it, you know, and had that day when on, on the Wednesday, last Wednesday, when tickets went on sale, they just screamed out the doors, which was normally, it's like such a kind, it's like pulling teeth when you put an event on, you know, it's the kind of really, the last few days where at least you, you kind of cover your losses for more than for one that I'm hoping for. But with the sofa, SofaCon, it just, it's been fantastic. You know, in the first day, we, we sold more in, well, in the first few hours than the, the Writer's Workshop. And I know the Writer's Workshop, the last one, Mike Resnick and Paul and Philip. We know it works, Writer's Workshops, the specialised events. But, the, you know, the SovaCon one just bleeds past that within a few hours, the, the number of downloads. And in the first week, we've sold half the tickets allocated. That's just staggering. Do you know what I mean? I've never had, well, I've never probably, I think... Maybe a couple more so if a couple more sell, it's the biggest selling event I've ever had. And like I say, we don't even start until or it kicks off on the twenty-eighth of July. So what what I'm desperate for, I'm, what I want is people that kind of listen to the show week in, week out, who get what we do, who want to come over to the sofa con, you know. That's who I want to kind of, you know, it's like a big family event, it's like a fun day, you know, it's like the relatives coming around and having like a big garden party. That's what we're after. Do you know what I mean? The ship's landing there. And we're, got, we're, we're seeing the relatives after a few years. So it'll be lovely if, you know, people that kind of just get what we do and everything like that come along to the event. So I'll keep yarping on about it. You know, you know I certainly will. Even just before I just press record there, tickets sold. So tickets are selling. So please pop along. If you want to get one, come along. I would love to see you there. Everyone would. To be quite honest, we don't want to do this kind of... Singing and dancing thing, <laughs> no bugger. But anyways, that'll be lovely. Right, we'll get into the show then. First up is Morgan Saletta with everything. He's talking about something I hate. Morgan. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. He'll hear you. Here he comes now. I'm getting out of here. Johnny! Hello and welcome to another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Morgan Saletta, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is The Zombie, From Voodoo Slave to Cannibal Plague. 
From the steaming mountain jungles and sugarcane plantations of Haiti, the walking dead zombies have shuffled, shambled, and occasionally run onto the world stage and into the global imagination. Emerging from Welsh tin mines and suburban cemeteries, these walking dead have been transformed from a folk mythology to a figure of both apocalyptic proportions and carnivalesque celebrations. The inspiration for this episode came from one of my few recent fiction reads, World War Z, soon to be released as a major motion picture. How do we know they're coming? They're coming. Ready. The book, by author Max Brooks, who also wrote the popular Zombie Survival Guide, is a lot of fun. It purports to be an oral history of the zombie war, and as such is written in short vignettes, which makes it perfect to read on public transport or short breaks. A while ago, I got interested in the whole idea of the zombie apocalypse, which crops up everywhere from government education campaigns about epidemics to internet community forums for survivalist types, such as the zombie squad. And then, of course, there are the carnivalesque zombie walks, even zombie pub crawls, that have been cropping up over the last decade in cities from the U.S. to Australia. Practically everyone knows that the original zombies were the creation of voodoo witch doctors in Haiti. But at the same time, the zombie as we know it today really crystallized in the works of George Romero, beginning with The Night of the Living Dead, an excerpt of which you heard opening this show. And those zombies, Romero's zombies, had nothing to do with witchcraft. In fact, in the first one, it seems that the culprit, in keeping with the Cold War times, was radiation. And we should remember that in Night of the Living Dead, the word zombie is never actually used. They're called ghouls. And in World War Z, like in the film 28 Days Later, about which debate rages as to whether or not it's a zombie film or not, the culprit is a plague, a virus which wreaks havoc and threatens to overthrow civilization. So, let's start at the beginning and explore a brief history of the zombie. Firstly, according to Sean McIntosh, author of The Evolution of the Zombie, The Monster That Keeps Coming Back, zombies are one of the few monsters that originate from a non-Gothic, non-European tradition that have passed directly from folk culture into popular culture without first being established as literature. In addition, and I will return to this later, ethnobotanist Wade Davis presented evidence in his book The Serpent and the Rainbow, later a much fictionalized movie by West Craven, that zombies actually exist, although the death-like state and mind control being the result of a drug, and I'll come back to that shortly. Zombies first entered Western imagination during the American occupation of Haiti from 1915 to 1934, and is generally attributed to William Seabrook's eyewitness, albeit fanciful, account of his travels and exploration of Haiti and voodoo culture in his book The Magic Island, illustrated with fantastic illustrations by Alexander King. Seabrook was a lifetime transgressor, an alcoholic and later a suicide, who sought as did many artists in the 1930s, to break the constraints of civilization by seeking what he believed were his primitive roots in the African, seeking witchcraft in Haiti and cannibalism in West Africa. In The Magic Island, Seabrook recounts a story of zombies recounted to him, and I'll read a short extract of that. Again, from his book, The Magic Island, published in 1929. In this extract, Seabrook is talking to his friend Paul Anise, who is describing to him the story of zombies and assuring him, despite his skepticism, that they are real. No, my friend, no. There are only too many true cases. At this very moment, in the moonlight, there are zombies working on this island, less than two hours' ride from my own habitation. We know about them, but we do not dare to interfere so long as our own dead are left unmolested. If you will ride with me tomorrow night, yes, I will show you dead men working in the cane fields. Close even to the cities, there are sometimes zombies. Perhaps you have already heard of those that were at Hasco? What about Hasco? I interrupted him. For in the whole of Haiti, Hasco is perhaps the last name anybody would think of connecting with either sorcery or superstition. The word is American commercial synthetic, like Nabisco, Delco, Soconi. It stands for the Haitian American Sugar Company, an immense factory plant dominated by a huge chimney with clanging machinery, steam whistles, freight cars, it is like a chunk of Hoboken. It lies in the eastern suburbs of Port-au-Prince, and beyond it stretch the cane fields of the cul-de-sac. 
Hasco makes rum when the sugar market is off, pays low wages, a shilling or so a day, and gives steady work. It is modern big business, and it sounds it, looks it, smells it. Such, then, was the incongruous background for the weird tale Constant Polonese now told me. The spring of 1918 was a big cane season, and the factory, which had its own plantations, offered a bonus on the wages of new workers. Soon, heads of family and villages from the mountain and the plain came trailing their ragtag little armies, men, women, children, trooping to the registration bureau and thence into the fields. One morning, an old black headman, T. Joseph of Colombier, appeared leading a band of ragged creatures who shuffled along behind him, staring dumbly, like people walking in a daze. As Joseph lined them up for registration, they still stared, vacant-eyed like cattle, and made no reply when asked to give their names. Joseph said they were ignorant people from the slopes of Morno Diable, a roadless mountain district near the Dominican border, and that they did not understand the creole of the plains. They were frightened, he said, by the din and smoke of the great factory, but under his direction they would work hard in the fields. The further they were sent away from the factory, from the noise and bustle of the railway yards, the better it would be. Better indeed, for these were not living men and women, but poor, unhappy zombies whom Joseph and his wife Croyance had dragged from their peaceful graves to slave for him in the sun. And if by chance a brother or father of the dead should see and recognize them, Joseph knew that it would be a very bad affair for him. So they were assigned to distant fields beyond the crossroads and camped there, keeping to themselves like any proper family or village group. But in the evening, when other little companies encamped apart as they were, gathered each around its one big common pot of savory millet or plantains, generously seasoned with dried fish and garlic, Croyance would tend two pots upon the fire, for, as everyone knows, the zombies must never be permitted to taste salt or meat. So the food prepared for them was tasteless and unseasoned. As the zombies toiled day after day dumbly in the sun, Joseph sometimes beat them to make them move faster, but Croyance began to pity the poor dead creatures who should be at rest, and pitied them in the evenings when she dished out their flat, tasteless bouilli. This story is particularly interesting because it reveals the origins of the zombie legend in the pain of slavery, which Haiti had ended in the world's only successful slave revolution, but whose memory was still fresh in the new corporate economic exploitation and near slavery in work at the cane fields during the American occupation. What struck me as particularly interesting as well with this zombie legend was the parallels in this form between the zombie and the figure of the robot, the machine worker, as it had emerged in the 1920s in Karl Capek's Rossum's Universal Robots, the word for robot coming from the Czech word for worker, as I have discussed in previous episodes. Seabrook's book, and Seabrook himself, received much popular attention, and other books catered to a public avid for sensational descriptions of voodoo, such as John Houston Craig's Black Baghdad and Cannibal Cousins. The zombie legend also came to the more serious attention of anthropologists in the 1930s. Zora Neale Hurston, an African-American folklorist and anthropologist, student of Franz Boas, and participant in the Harlem Renaissance, documented her research into voodoo in her 1938 book, Tell My Horse. This is an extract, which I've edited, of a 1943 interview on the Margaret McBride Show with Zora Neale Hurston, as she explains her theory regarding zombies. Well, a zombie is supposed to be the living dead. Uh, people who die and are resurrected, and, but without their souls. And they can take orders, and they're supposed to be never to be tired, and to do what the master says uh, without uh, cease and without being tired. Uh, I uh, naturally... It would be uh, futile for me to attempt to try to explain everything. Uh, I do know that people have been resurrected in Haiti. I do not believe that they were actually dead. I believe that it was suspended animation. And since there's no embalming there, it's possible. And since people are not buried below ground, they have the above-ground vaults as they do in New Orleans. And uh, they take uh, corpses out. It's been proven, there have been cases proven where... Folks have been dead and folks uh, thought they were done for, and months later somebody finds them somewhere in some hidden place, actually alive, but without their minds. And uh, 
the process is that the uh, Bokar, you know, they have two kind of priests in Haiti. The Hungan, which is the regular voodoo priest, and then the Bokar, who is supposed to be a wicked priest. It is stated that a Hungan is not a Bokar, and a Bokar is not a Hungan. However, uh, one and the same person sometimes acts the same. So that uh, you have to take that little sort of box of salt about one of them <laughs> not being the same. But anyway, uh, they know something. They go and awaken the person from the grave. And the uh, society does more. The society of the dead goes with him. And they surround this tomb at midnight with their lights. And the Bokor goes inside and uh, with a supposedly the soul of the dead man in his hand. Some say, some Bokor say they carry it in a bottle. Others say they carried in his hand, and they began to to strike this uh, dead body to wake him up, and at the same time holding his soul on his nose. And he must answer, because his soul is there. And so he answers, and when he begins to stir, they handcuff him so that he can't resist. And then they beat him and beat him, and finally wake him up thoroughly. And he's carried in the center and the, of this society of the dead, and they must march him past his house where he lived, because if they don't, he will regain his consciousness someday. But if they carry him past the house where he lives, he will never remember again who he was or where he lived or anything. He will just be an animated person. And maybe he's taken to some distant plantation and put to work. And his relatives think that the person... But before that, he goes to the home fort. That is the voodoo temple. And there he's given uh, a drop or two of a colorless liquid and uh, in the course of a ceremony, and he will never remember again. Of course, they never give them salt. They claim that salt will tend to counteract that, and they will remember who they are. And this particular zombie, whom I photograph, whom I think I'm the first person on Earth, and probably the last one to ever photograph a zombie, she had died in 1907, and nobody saw her anymore until 1936, when she was found naked on a road. But she remembered a little. She remembered where she used to live. And she went to this plantation that used to be her father's, which was now her brother's. She was identified by her brother, her ex-husband, her son, who was now grown. He was two or three years old when she died in uh, 1907. And she was identified, and she was officially identified by the Haitian government. And that was all the records of her death and her burial. And I photographed her in 1936. And, uh, and in Haiti. The picture was published first in Life magazine and is in this book here, Tell My Horse, the picture of the zombie. Zombies do exist, but whether, I mean, the moot question is whether they can raise people from the dead. I think it is that they have brought drugs from Africa, which uh, the so-called civilized world does not know about, but which they will find about, perhaps eventually, and which produce certain effects. That like suspended animation? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. That could be. Yes. It seems, uh, I've heard that theory advanced before, I yes. suppose. Uh, Certainly there are too many cases of proven zombies to, to claim they do not arouse people who've been allegedly dead. This interview can be heard in a more extended form on YouTube. I'll put the link in the forums. Hurston's intuition that there might be a pharmacological explanation to some of the zombie accounts, she herself met a woman thought to have been zombified, were the starting point for Canadian ethnobotanist Wade Davis's later research in Haiti, which formed the source material for two books, Passage of Darkness, The Ethnobiology of the Haitian Zombie, which is a heavily referenced academic work, and the more popular account, The Serpent and the Rainbow. Davis's basic claim is that there are rare but real cases of zombification, and that the death-like state is primarily due to tetrodotoxin from the pufferfish, or the Japanese fugu, and that plants containing DMT are administered to the victim afterwards to induce temporary psychosis and suggestibility. His theory, particularly the role played by tetrodotoxin, have been seriously questioned by other researchers, but his research is undeniably fascinating and the thesis a bold attempt to solve the mystery of the zombie. In this interview with the Canadian Broadcasting Company, a young Wade Davis talks about his research. For centuries, fantastic stories have emanated from Haiti about voodoo rituals, about people being raised from the dead, and mysterious secret societies. Wade Davis is a Canadian student at Harvard, spent a couple of years in Haiti trying to uncover the truth behind the stories of voodoo and zombies. 
The results of his investigation are in his new book, The Serpent and the Rainbow. And he joins me this morning in the studio. Good morning, Wade. Hi, Peter. Tell me what you set out to do. Were this a, an essentially an academic exercise or a or an exercise in adventure writing? Oh, no, it was, it was strictly an academic project. And uh, I must say that when I first was brought into the investigation in 1982, I myself would never have thought uh, for a minute that zombies could exist. And for that matter, I knew very little about Haiti and nothing about its Afro- African roots of the people there. It started off simply as a, an assignment. Um, my specialty is, is ethnobotany, which is just a study of plants used by uh, man, and especially in our interest, traditional societies. And I was simply brought into this investigation to look for a long-reported folk poison that was said to bring on a state of apparent death that would, be, that would actually allow a person to be buried alive. But as I'm, I'm thinking as when you came back and you started to sort through your material, and I mean, you, you, the, the book is assembled so much, it begins so much like a good old thrilling adventure yarn. Mm-hmm. You must have been aware of that as you were, as you were writing it. Oh, I was aware of you it. Got all the professors have beautiful daughters and all those things happen to you. have a kind of... A, it's just set out. I mean, it starts like a movie. Well, it, it, it really, in a sense, I suppose, had that kind of tone to it. Um, I wrote it in the first person because it seemed the easiest way to allow the story to tell itself. And as I mentioned before, I went down there with no preconceptions and looking for this one preparation, and the whole thing kind of opened up a Pandora's box. And in a sense, the whole zombie investigation, per se, became just a metaphor for understanding this whole culture, this extraordinary society of of Haiti and of Haitian voodoo. As I mentioned earlier, The Serpent and the Rainbow was also later adapted, and heavily so, into Wes Craven's horror film of the same title. From Wes Craven, director of A Nightmare on Elm Street, comes a story of the forbidden world between life and death. There's a door to the mystical. And you just walk through it. Somebody brought him back from the grave. And I want to know how they did it. Death is not the end. I'll take your soul. You think you can take these people's secrets and just walk away? shadows of the imagination lies the ultimate nightmare don't let them bury me i'm not dead the serpent and the rainbow the first silver screen appearance of a zombie was in the halpern brothers white zombie a tale of possessions starring Bella Dracula Lugosi as a plantation owner desirous of another's wife who hires a voodoo sorcerer to help him obtain his desire. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, and the most infamous cult of all, Bela Lugosi has murdered a genre, master of the undead damned. The sinister power behind the white zombie. Most of the early zombie movies of the 1930s and 40s maintained the colonial theme out of which the zombie legend was born and dealt with erotic possession of women and or racial issues with some portraying natives as ignorant savages while others, such as Val Luton's I Walked with a Zombie, is praised today for what Stuart McIntosh calls his sensitive portrayal of natives and the issues surrounding colonialism and race. And out of their West Indian island comes a tale of terror and voodoo, of witchcraft and zombies, and all the weird black magic that the white man seldom sees. It is a tale of brother against brother and their love for a woman who lived with the dead. And it is also the tale of a young nurse who never believed such things could happen. Are you trying to tell me that the voodoo priest could cure Mrs. Holland? Better doctors. Dambala, 
This woman is ill. This is the ceremony of voodoo death. A ceremony that seeks the life of the woman who lives forever, who walks with the dead. According to Macintosh, zombies did not feature heavily in horror films of the 40s, but the 1950s and 60s marked a transitional phase where the concept of what a zombie was began to mutate, as did their appearance, which until then had been largely shuffling but still rather clean monsters, that is, freshly dead. Hammer's 1966 film, The Plague of Zombies, popularized the rotting appearance of zombies emerging from the grave. This coach is bound for a terrifying destination. No corpse can remain at peace in this village of the undead, this land of the zombies. In this place, no one is safe. No one can hide from witchcraft, superstition, and fear. Even Sir James Forbes, the clear-headed man of science, was forced to accept the horrifying facts. Young Martinus also says that he saw something on the moors, something that he insists was his brother. But we know that his brother is dead. We also know that he is not lying in his coffin. Someone in this village is practicing witchcraft. That corpse wandering on the moors is an undead zombie. A place dominated by men without morals, whose bloodlusts are excited by hunting a human quarry. When Sylvia Forbes hated the young squire, it was dangerous. But when she fell in love with him, it was lethal. The Hammer film, however, stuck close to the original source zombie, with the plantation owner replaced by a Welsh mine owner, and the horrid working conditions of the Welsh tin miners of the time was an obvious theme of the film. But of course, the zombie emerged truly transformed from the country cemeteries of George Romero's 1968 Night of the Living Dead, whose basic premise of a small number of survivors holed up and fighting for their lives against the onslaught of the voracious walking dead set the theme for many later zombie films. And, ever since Night of the Living Dead, the zombie has become apocalyptic in nature, with zombies threatening to bring about the end of the world as we know it. The strong element of social critique in Romero's films has also been recognized by many critics and commentators. According to David Pagano, the nuclear family, racism, sexism, consumer culture, and the military-industrial complex all come under heavy criticism in the first three films, and thinly veiled would fail to convey the intensity of the post-9-11 allegory that is Land of the Dead. Less well-known to the general public, but also influential and well-loved by horror fans, are the many foreign zombie films, especially the spaghetti-splatter Italian zombie films, such as Zombie, sometimes known as Zombie 2, produced by Fabrizio de Angelis, and originally intended as a simple remake of Night of the Living Dead. But in the hands of director Lucio Fulci, the film became a horror classic in its own right. The two most famous scenes being an underwater battle between a zombie and a shark, and a scene in which a woman is killed by a zombie by having her eye pierced with splintered wood in a sadistically overdrawn-out scene. Of course, there are so many zombie movies and even television series such as The Walking Dead that I couldn't hope to talk about them all, but I'll close by briefly mentioning 28 Days Later. This film has generated a lot of debate on forums as to whether it's actually a zombie movie or not, and I think that much of this debate misses the point about the hybrid nature of zombies. Sure, 28 Days Later isn't a Romero zombie film, and no, the infected are not dead as such, but they certainly are no longer human, and there is no denying that the movie incorporates many zombie elements in it. But the point is, the entire zombie genre is like this, a hybrid, Romero zombies have little in common with the original Haitian zombie legend, but that's because of the hybrid nature of the global popular imagination that has spawned them. That has spawned them, combining elements of horror and science fiction in a genre that, 
unlike its monsters, be they shamblers or runners, is far from dead. And that's it for now, ladies and gentlemen. This has been another installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections in Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. And I'll leave you with this clip by the psychobilly group, The Meteors. She's a zombie now. There you go. Oh, man, zombies. What? God, I cannot stand them, man. The scare is so much. Do you know what I mean? 46-year-old kid, frightened kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, just can't grip us with something. Fear inside is horrible. Anyway, Morgan, <laughs> the quality was fantastic. The subject matter was a little bit strong for me. Next up is the main fiction, and it is by Caroline M. Joachim. I'll give you a little heads up about Caroline. A writer and photographer lived in Seattle, Washington. She is a graduate of the Clarion West Writers Workshop and was nominated for a Nebula Award in 2011 for a novelette, Stonewall Truth. Her fiction has appeared in Asimov's Lightspeed and Daily Science Fiction, amongst other places. For more about Caroline... Check out our website, carolinejoachim.com. And this story came out in Interzone, just a fantastic British genre magazine as well. Do you know what I mean? Just pushing out some crack and stuff. Keep an eye out for Caroline. This, you know, one writer to certainly look out for. This story is narrated by Graham Dunlop. Graham is a software architect and aspiring voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the audio producer for the horror podcast Pseudopod and the host and audio producer for the young adult podcast Cast of Wonders. He occasionally tweets of low interest, mainly complaints, at Kibitza. So you find him over there at Twitter. Graham, fantastic narration. Honestly, what a voice. Thank you so much, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Philosophy of Ships by Carolyn M. Yakim. Kaimu dug his skis into the snow and forced himself onto the steeper slope along the edge of the run. Michelle was behind him and there wasn't far to go. He was going to win. A white-furred creature stood at the sound of his approach. It rose up from the snow and stared, paralysed, directly in his path. The safety mechanism on the skis activated but it was too late to turn. Instead, the skis treated the creature as though it was a ski jump. Kaimu landed and the safety shut off. Several metres up the mountain, Michelle knelt in the snow. You hit an earther. Impossible. Before he left the Willflower, the tourist board had assured him that the glacier-covered Canadian region wasn't populated. All the native earthers were in a temperate band near the equator. Hominid Class 304, Organic Component 100%. Michelle transmitted her initial assessment to the rest of her collective, pausing briefly upon discovery that the creature had no upgrades. The rest of her transmission was a stream of numbers relating to the creature's condition. All Kaimu gleaned from the numbers was that the creature wasn't dead. Yet. Blood stained its shaggy white coat and seeped into the icy powder. Kaimu stepped off of his skis. Cold seeped through his ski suit and chilled his feet. He trudged up the hill, kicking his toes into the powder. Can you save it, he asked. Twenty-eight percent. My training is neurosurgery and I've never worked on anything 100% organic before. Michelle's gaze was locked on the two parallel gashes in the creature's torso, but most of her mind was elsewhere, searching for the knowledge she needed. To her, this was a problem, a challenge. He wondered if she was enjoying it. Michelle turned away and Kaimu stepped in for a better look at the injured earther. Despite its blood-matted fur and diminutive stature, it was undeniably human. She 
Kaimu realised from the gentle curve of her hips, she was undeniably human. Her fur was downy and short, more silver than white. The coarser, whiter fur that covered much of her body turned out to be clothing cut from the skin of an animal. He shuddered. You're in my way. Michelle nudged him aside. She'd reprogrammed one of her skis to the smallest size, still unwieldy, but small enough to hold in one hand. She drew the sharp edge along the earth's outer furs, cutting away the clothing. Unable to see, Kaimu extended sensory tendrils, tapping into Michelle's visuals and trying to grasp the severity of the injuries. Too distracting, Michelle informed him. She banished his consciousness into a memory cache. In the memory, there are three consciousnesses in Michelle's body. Michelle, of course, and Jasmine, who isn't so bad. Elliot, however, Kaimu finds deeply disturbing. Not the man himself, but the idea that Michelle is part male, or that another man's in his girlfriend's head. Kaimu tries to tangle himself only with Michelle, but the three are so intertwined he has no choice but to dissolve into all of them. Kaimu recognises the memory. He's on planetside leave on Nova Terra, and it's his first time visiting Michelle at work. She's been easing him into her life. It's a new experience for her to share herself without drawing him into her collective. It's new for him too. Michelle reviews patient data files while she waits for him to arrive. All around her, Hospital 617 buzzes with activity. In physical space, the hospital is a cavernous room, one floor, no walls. In headspace, there's more privacy, walls that give the illusion of each patient having a separate room. As part of the staff, Michelle doesn't bother uploading the headspace sensory inputs. Through her eyes, Kaimu can see the entire floor. Specialists of all sorts hover over their patients. Most of the work is upgrades, body reconstruction, routine anti-mortality treatments. Neurosurgery team 8 to 27-12. The woman in bed 27-12 is old. Not in the sense that Kaimu is old. His age comes from time dilation from his trips between the stars. Her skin is wrinkled and blotchy, and her hair is thinned so he can see the top of her scalp. She's frail. Her body is giving out. Kaimu sees himself weaving across the hospital floor. He feels his kiss on Michelle's cheek. He hears himself ask if she's busy. She tells him yes, but stay anyway. So he does. She goes back to the woman. Elliot crowds his way to the foreground with patient information. Noalani Lai. A flood of data packets swirl around the name, age, medical history, anything that might be relevant to selecting a treatment. Jasmine dilutes herself into the hospital archives, matching Elliot's patient data to other surgical cases. The mini-collective reconvenes and decides that the woman's body is inoperable. Insufficient regenerative capabilities. Instead, they will rewire her organics to allow her consciousness to disengage itself. She can be installed into a new body later if she so desires. Michelle peels away layers of skin and cuts through Noalani's skull. The tissue beneath is predominantly organic, with traces of ancient wiring, more primitive than Kaimu. As a navigational officer, he's had to upgrade to interface with the Willflower. Michelle blends with Jasmine and Elliot so thoroughly during the surgical procedure that Kaimu can't find Michelle at all. They become Jasmine, Elliot, Michelle. Gem. As the surgery progresses, the sight and smell of Noalani's organics become mildly nauseating. The smart dust that sterilises the air leaves behind odour-causing particles because sometimes a strange smell can serve as a diagnostic tool. Kaimu is relieved when the operation is finished and he can pick out strands of Michelle again. She doesn't bother to replace the slice of skull she removed, simply folds the skin back down over the wound. Noalani floats out from her organics and into the vast interconnectivity beyond. Unused to such freedom, she loses cohesiveness, still existing but commingled with the larger world. Jasmine observes and notes the response as normal. 
25% of patients who were absorbed in this way eventually recohere. The remainder pursue a less individualised existence. Jem declares the operation a success. Michelle, the real-time Michelle on the mountain, has shown him what she wants him to see, but now there is something he wants her to see. Awkwardly, since he isn't used to manhandling other minds, he takes control of the fractional portion of Michelle that led him here. He binds them to the hospital recording of a young woman. The woman is Noelani's granddaughter, Amy. She hurries through the maze of hallways filled with an overwhelming sense of worry. Not for Tutu, but for Mum. She remembers Tutu from her childhood, an energetic woman with long black hair who held her hand in Southside Park while they fed energy chips to the mechanical ducks. They'd gone every time Tutu came to visit, from the time she was two until the time Amy decided she was too old for ducks. In the pre-op room, Mum is holding Tutu's hand. Mum's eyes are swollen and red, but dry. When she sees Amy, fresh tears roll down her face. Tutu, she says. Tutu, wake up. Amy's here. Amy puts her hand on Mum's shoulder, half a hug, because Mum can't turn away from Tutu. It's okay, Mum. She was awake an hour ago, Mum says. She pushes gently against Tutu's shoulder. Your granddaughter is here, Amy. Amy takes Tutu's hand. It isn't the strong hand that she remembers from her childhood. The surgeons wouldn't fix her body. Even Amy could see that Tutu was too old. They would save her by putting her into the collective and she would be absorbed and lost. Amy can't bring herself to say her goodbyes out loud. The words would be too final and her voice would fail her. Instead, she squeezes Tutu's hand and thinks the word, Goodbye. Kaimu withdraws, taking Michelle with him. They drift back to themselves and the warm hospital air shifts to the biting chill of the mountain. He has to pause and collect himself. Michelle doesn't acknowledge his return. That memory meant nothing to you, Kaimu said, disappointed. You used my access rights to get a hospital recording of a private individual. Those are only supposed to be used in the event of a malpractice suit. She tried to sound stern, but Kaimu could tell that she was more amused than angry. Besides, I've seen it before. Outdated minds thinking outdated thoughts. Human minds thinking human thoughts, he snapped back. I never said the minds weren't human. Her voice was quiet, sad as though he'd missed something, had failed some test. Her sadness diffused into anger and he let the argument lapse into silence. The earther's eyes were open, pale blue, like the colour of the sky diluted with white snow. They reminded him of his son, Kenji, before he disconnected from his body. He'd been six years old. Kaimu had married and divorced a few women in a century since, but he never fathered any more children. Michelle was right. He was outdated. He shook the memory away. The earther's eyes didn't move except to blink. Her right eye was clouded over by cataracts. While his mind had been locked away in the past, Michelle had finished work on the lower gash. Now she reprogrammed bits of her ski suit to serve as bandages. She pulled strips of suit from the back of her neck. Kaimu supposed that the thick curls of her hair would block the icy air. Michelle buried her hand wrist-deep into the upper gash. There shouldn't have been room. The earth's torso was small. She must have pushed all the organs aside. Orbs of blood dotted the blue-green fabric of her ski suit. The fabric refused to absorb the stain, so the globules floated like crimson buoys on the tropical sea. So much blood. Any updates, he asked. She wasn't transmitting assessments anymore. Maybe more of the collective was in her head now, eliminating the need to broadcast. You're not helping, Michelle responded. This time, Michelle sends him to a memory in his own perspective. He recognises where he is from the functionality of the space. Every inch is utilised, cosy and enclosed, but not cramped. 
He's cradled in the mind of the willflower, his ship. He's far more comfortable here than he was in the hospital. At least he is until he realises when she sent him. He's in the aft lounge. A group of passengers is gathered around the bar, downing colourful fruit and alcohol concoctions, killing time until they have to get into the stasis tanks. There's an iridescent blue ship roach on the counter, and everyone places wagers on which dimensional coordinates it will take off from. The ship roach scurries about, seemingly uninterested in flight. Off to Kaimu's right, a section of the wall moves. His brain adjusts to recognise Danji, his least favourite of Michelle's collective. Danji is a collective within the collective, like Jasmine Elliott Michelle, but with seven minds mashed together. He's trendy and arrogant. His genes are spliced with chameleon or octopus or some other long-extinct creature so that he can change colour at will. He's been hiding against the wall and now he ripples with yellow stripes. Aggressive. Nearly all the members of Michelle's collective seek novelty, but Dungey goes out of his way to make other people squirm so he can study their reactions. Hey, precious, he sneers, want to join my collective? Kaimu doesn't know whether he means his mini-collective or the collective he shares with Michelle. He wants nothing to do with Danji, regardless. No thanks. You realise how dumb it is to be with Michelle and not the rest of us, Danji continues. He's been in the med ward for several days and Kaimu isn't thrilled with his back in circulation. Like, (laughs) loving an arm. An arm isn't conscious, it's not the same. Fine, like loving an arm and the little blob of brain that controls it. Danji turns his head. The left side of his skull is gone, replaced by a clear dome. The surgery he's had done is a brain shaping, purely cosmetic. Instead of the normal folds of grey cortex, his brain has been moulded into the form of a dragon. I'm getting it colourised tomorrow, he says. Then he lifts the dome that covers the brain. Want to lick it? Kaimu backs away as though the exposed tissue will leap out and attack him. Danji laughs, sticks his hand into his skull and pets the dragon with one finger. The lounge has gone silent as all the drinkers admire the unusual design of Danji's brain. Novelty. The shiproach takes off and Kaimu is the only one to notice. Cover that up. Nobody wants to see your little lizard, Kaimu says. Danji's fist smashes through his face. It is a strange sensation, almost painless, despite the sickening crunch as splinters of bone are pushed into his brain. The safety protocols of the ship lock down his mind. There are several seconds of blackness. The Michelle fragment skips him forward through time. He's in his cabin. A few paces away, Michelle studies his most prized possession, a bonsai tree. It is centuries old, with roots that curl around a smooth grey stone before disappearing into a shallow layer of soil. The bonsai comes from a simpler time. If you lived in that time, you'd be dead by now, or horribly disfigured. Michel is in his head, monitoring him. He resents the intrusion. Okay, okay, I'm out, she says. I had to make sure the reconstructive surgery was successful. That was barbaric, he says bastard could have killed me. There's a copy of your consciousness stored in Willflower, so even if the body had been inoperable, I could have generated another manifestation, started from scratch. It would have taken longer, but death wasn't really an issue. Danji doesn't like you, but he's not a monster. (sighs) After what he did to me, how much of my brain did you have to regenerate? How much of my face... He's practically yelling at Michelle despite the fact that she probably spent the last hour or more putting him back together. Michelle transmits the surgical data. She's regrown 7% of his cortex, mostly frontal lobe, and reconstructed his nose and left eye. This isn't the first time Kaimu has been badly injured. Over the years, almost 45% of his brain and body have been replaced. He doesn't feel any different. If you have a ship, he says, and you replace it one board at a time, and all the while it sails, is it still the same ship? The problem is from ancient philosophy, and it takes her a moment to find the appropriate reference. Sorites, but the ships weren't sentient then. It wouldn't matter. It matters to me. 
whether it's the same ship and whether this, he waves his arms up and down his torso, it's the same body, the same brain. This attachment to your organics, it's pretty neurotic. You know that, right? Michelle puts her hand on his cheek. She means it in a caring way, not as an insult. And while I don't like what Danji did, it's not as vicious as you make it out to be. Not to him. Not really to me either, except that I know how much it bothers you. Danji's just upset that we're here on the Willflower, in bodies for the whole trip, rather than going on the roving never and getting new bodies when we arrive at Earth. He almost left the collective over it, so now he's frustrated and bored. So it's okay that he smashed my face and sent bone shards into my brain because he was bored. How could Michelle refuse to understand? No, it's okay because it's just organics. Haven't you ever smashed your fist into the ship's interface console when you were frustrated? Well, that hurts my fist and doesn't damage the ship, he counters. But yes... Have you asked the ship how she feels about it? She's a ship. And you think we're the barbarian. Something happens, not in the memory, but in real time. Kaimu can sense it through Michelle's fragment. He tries to go back, but Michelle resists. Kaimu is certain that something is wrong. Michelle is stalling him, keeping him off the mountain. He flings his consciousness forward through the memory cache against her resistance. She lets him reach the point where they are preparing to ski early that morning in their temp lodge at the top of the mountain. The lodge is programmed with red walls adorned with replicas of ancient Japanese art, delicate cherry branches in black and pink, stylized blue tidal waves, bold black characters done in flawless calligraphy. Michel doesn't care whose perspective he takes for this memory, so he settles into his own mind. He sits on a bamboo floor mat and yanks on the legs of his ski suit, trying to push his toes up into the stiff boot bottoms. <laughs> That's ridiculously antique, Michel says, and I have plenty of paint. You sure you don't want some? Michel is fresh out of the shower, naked and holding a jar of end body paint. Her skin is pink from the heat of the shower, colour of cherry blossoms. Sandy brown freckles splash across her chest, trailing down her arms and up her neck. He loves it when she wears freckles. Well, she asks, holding up the paint. Nope, I'll wear this, he points to the suit. Uncomfortable as it is, at least his private parts won't flap around while he skis. Suit yourself, she says. Michelle orders up a cushion and sprawls herself across the squishy blob that emerges from the floor. Comfortable, she opens her jar of paint and applies it to her legs with smooth strokes. Kaimu half-heartedly tugs on his suit, but his attention is focused on Michelle. She's programmed the nanofiber paint to a shifting pattern of blues and greens, sunlight filtering through ocean waves. She paints her way down her thigh, coating the indented curve on the back of her knee, the swell of her calf. By the time she gets to her foot, he's dropped his ski suit and simply stares at her, making no effort to dress himself. She knows he's watching and takes her time, painting the ticklish arch at the bottom of her foot, then swirling paint around each toe. He takes the bait and stands up his legs encased in the suit to mid-thigh, but the rest of the suit dangling down. You'll get pretty cold skiing like that, she says. You'll get pretty ravished teasing me like that. <laughs> I'll get pretty ravished after skiing, you mean. She's finished her legs now and starts painting her way up from her hip. I'm already painted from the waist down. Well, I can think of a few ways to get that stuff off. But you won't, she says, because you're a gentleman and I enjoy the anticipation. You enjoy teasing me all day, she laughs. <laughs> that too. Kaimu watches himself suit up. The Michelle fragment apologises, but doesn't explain why. Kaimu flies down the slopes, skis skimming over fluffy snow. Michelle is behind him, taunting him to go faster. Adrenaline pumps through his system and mingles with an urge to impress her. He gives up on turning and points his skis straight down, letting the pines whiz by in the periphery of his vision. 
Single trunks blur together, their individuality stolen by his speed. He is the wind in air that stands still. Tendrils of his mind reach backwards for Michelle to share with her this beautiful chaos of falling. The green wall of Trinus to his right closes in, swerves in front of him. Fear replaces excitement and he cannot turn. A single tree separates itself from the others, unmoving despite his speed because it stands directly before him, it looms over him. Against his volition, his feet shoot upwards and sideways, twisting his body inside the ski suit. He hears the smack of skis on wood, a glancing blow, the safeties on the skis automatically avoiding a harmful collision. His skis reconnect with the snow back under his control, slowed now, and travelling at an angle to the slope, redirected by the tree. Michelle lets out a whoop behind him, as though he'd skidded off the tree on purpose, a trick to impress her. He slows to a stop and turns in time to see her mimic his trick, intentionally and far more gracefully. She stops on the hillside above him, spraying him with snow in the process. Good trick, she says, smiling. He relaxes after that, knowing that the skis can rescue him from his own ineptitude. In short order, they reach the bottom of the mountain and cuddle together in the agrav chute that propels them back to the top. From above the tree line, he can see mountains in every direction, monuments of ice and rock reaching up to the sky. Down the other side this time? Race you, meet you up at their rocks, he says, and dumps the coordinates to his navigation system. You win. I'll give you a head start. Okay, I... Go! She gives him a little shove, sending him over a ledge and onto a steep mogul-covered slope. The skis recognise his inability to deal with the bumpy conditions and swerve through the bumps. He gets the hang of it, and before it flattens out, the safeties turn off again. Now me! Michelle is too far away for speech, so she transmits. There's no way he'll win with such a tiny lead. Well, he can at least make it challenging. He bends his knees, tucks down to decrease the wind resistance. A smattering of trees dot the slope as he gets lower, then denser trees close in around the run. He watches them carefully this time, scanning the slope ahead of him so he'll have plenty of time to turn. Avoid the green. Michelle hasn't passed him yet. He risks a glance and she's farther back than he expected. If he can avoid ploughing into the trees, he might even win. The run curves and Kaimu turns to follow it. He can see the rock in the distance and Michelle is still behind him. Something moves. He'd have seen it sooner, but it was white and he was watching for green. It's running out across his path... The skis slash sideways. The safeties on his skis are old, and to avoid overloading them, he'd simplified the obstacle detection by specifying that he and Michelle were the only humans on the slope. His breath sticks in his chest as the blades tear through fur and flesh. It is worse in memory than in real time. Finally, Michelle releases him. The earther was dead. Her unfocused eyes reflected the empty sky. Kaimu's freshly relived memories mingled with the realities of the present. You should have let me stay, he told Michelle. You wouldn't have understood what I was doing, she said. You don't understand what's happening now. Look. She pointed to the earther, to the wound that stretched across her chest. Several ribs had been broken away. Her heart and lungs were rearranged, shoved off to the sides to gain access to her spinal cord. Blood pooled in the cavity. Michelle had never tried to save the earther's body. All along she'd been working her way down to the spinal cord, trying to pry the consciousness free before the body died. She's completely organic. Why would you even try? he asked. You started organic, she said. All it takes is time. Time to map the pattern of neuronal connections. Time to record the firing patterns. But we're on a mountainside. You used a ski to cut her open, for God's sakes, he said. You should have operated on her body. How could you possibly record everything you needed to save her consciousness? And even if you could, she'd never make it on the network. Michelle held up her arm. There was a cut on her wrist. I reprogrammed some of my peripherals to do the recordings. He needed to see what she had done, to understand, but she was blocking him out. It's, it's my fault, not yours, he said. 
I'm sure you did all you could. She still refused to let him in. He'd never experienced this before. Sometimes he had blocked her out when he wanted privacy, but she had always been open. He missed the closeness of being tangled with her mind. She must have felt the same frustration when he had closed himself off. From now on, he'd try to be more open to her, less stubborn. You don't have to hide from me, he said. It worked. You put her on the network and she adapted to that? No. She put her hand on his shoulder. He could barely feel her touch through the stiff fabric of his ski suit. I started out that way, but I learned something from you. To me, a body is nothing, but to you, or to her, I'm sorry. You're sorry, he echoed. Then he realized what she'd done. She's there, with you. Michelle nodded. I'm almost done teaching her my body. Her body. What about you? I... She started, but then paused. We. We are going to merge more fully. Distributed existence was interesting, but it's time for something else now. You're leaving me. I couldn't bring you, even if you wanted to come, she said. I'll miss you, even with your strange ideas and your locked-off mind. But you aren't ready. And that's okay. Besides, she'll need you. But we... Stay a little longer. And what about her? Leave her trapped in a body she doesn't control? He took her hand from his shoulder and brushed her fingertips against his lips. He had always known that she was beyond him, but instead of trying to grow, he tried to force her to come to his level. Michelle withdrew. He sensed her in the network, mingling with others, dissolving and changing. He felt her brush against the edge of his consciousness, briefly, a goodbye kiss to his mind. Then she was gone. The earther stood before him, not moving, the body was unchanged, Michelle's stunning red hair, her long legs, the exposed patch of neck where she'd peeled away her end paint. There were freckles there, hiding on the pale skin beneath a curtain of curls. But the woman that stood before him didn't carry herself with Michelle's confidence. Her posture was bad, her eyes darted in all directions. He was still holding her hand. He let go. Kaimu waited. He didn't know what to do, whether he should say something, whether she would understand it if he did. The earther looked up at him. I am Bela, she said. That was all. Nothing that came later was relevant. The jury collective didn't need to see it. Kaimu wouldn't have to relive it, though what came after was less painful than the accident itself and his final moments with Michelle. The jury deliberated for several seconds, unusually long, but for a mind as slow as Kaimu's it wasn't even long enough to worry. No penalties on any of the charges. The tourist board acknowledges the non-death of the Earther Bela. You are free to go. Baylor sat beside him and held his hand, blissfully unaware of most of the proceedings. Out of the corner of his eye, she still reminded him of Michelle, but Baylor wore the body differently. No longer fearful, as she was those first moments on the mountainside, but solemn, because the body was a gift. Was she the same person she was before? Hers was a ship replaced, not board by board, but all at once. Kaimu sometimes searched for traces of Michelle, but she was gone. She was not a ship at all. She was the ocean, deep and vast, with a form forever changing in waves of green and blue. <laughs> there you go, don't forget. 
Copyright is Caroline's. Caroline, a big thank you. Honestly, I would hope to get you know love to get some more stories by you. This I just love that one. Thank you so much. And Graham, what can I say, sir? Thank you. Big hugs all round. So that is show 294. Thank you so much. Again, please think about coming over to SofaCon. Myself, Amy, Dennis is there. We've got Louise Macasta Bujold on there. Guest of honour is the amazing Peter Watts. And I'm trying to get him to come out in his, in his bathrobe for the introduction. And he'll do a little speech at the end of it as well. We've got other things. Not least, we have got a quiz a quiz to end all quizzes, science fiction, fandom, podcast, extraordinaire, SF Signal, up against the might that is Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And I've just thought there when I was saying that, I had that round the other way around, the last time it was the might of SF Signal. <laughs> That's the kind of quality you'll find at SofaCon. I hope you'll come along. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.